0: Everybody, it's been a 007 back for another mini-pod on the Agatha Christie pre reread, read if that's not an absurdly long introduction, to a new Vassals of Kingsgrove series where we'll discuss some of the most famous and beautifully constructed of Agatha Christie's wonderful detective novels. She is obviously now in her centenary, we're 100 years since some of her earliest books were written. And with that, it makes sense to have a retrospective, not just of her work, but also of the times in which she lived and to use those texts to see how social and political attitudes have changed. So in today's little mini pod, I'm going to talk about her 1923 novel, so 99 years old, Murder on the Links*. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with golf, as am I really, Lynx courses are a type of golf course usually made near the sea on sort of soft, sandy shallows. But if you're expecting a novel full of the intricacies and minutiae of the game of golf, just as her cards on the table is intimately bound up with the game of bridge, you will be disappointed. Um, the Lynx course is the location where one of the bodies is found in this murder. But otherwise, this novel has very little to do with golf. So don't use that as a motivation to read this novel. Um, The other thing I would say about this novel is that it is her second Écule Poirot novel um, after The Mysterious Affair at Styles, And I don't think it holds up. I mean, I'm rereading all of them. So I'm being a completionist. But unless you're trying to do the same I wouldn't necessarily recommend you seek this one out for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all I was very aware reading this book that this was Agatha Christie inventing herself as a writer and sort of feeling out the kind of book that she wanted to write and what I find in Murder on the Links is she's actually writing far more about what she doesn't want to be as a detective writer than just showing us what she does want to be. And that's totally understandable. It's her third novel, um, hugely accomplished by anyone else's standards. So I don't want to sound condescending, but I just think there's better to come. And she probably knew that herself. Why do I say that this is a novel of invention? I say that because she sets this novel in France and I think she's writing in correspondence with two strands of detective history. So the novels of Gaston Le also the fashion at the time to have detective novels be very romantic, have big grand romances. She writes herself about Murder on the Links that she had to sort of, you know, foist upon it a big romantic um, story, which she detested and you can tell because it's really unbelievable and very lightly essayed. And she uses it to get rid of one of her her least favorite characters, Hastings, Poirot's Watson-like sidekick, um, which is hilarious actually, because Hastings survives in the TV and film adaptations. I think films feel they need Poirot to have a sidekick to explain things to. Um, but it's it's kind of interesting when you go back and read the books and realize that she got really sick of him and got rid of him in her second novel through the the guise of him meeting. Falling in love and getting married very quickly um, in a very unsatisfying romance story. So, Agatha Christie um, is kind of writing in response to LaRue and very sort of florid French detective works. She's writing in response to the romance element that she clearly despises. She's also still writing, I think, in response to people like Arthur Conan Doyle and the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. And she does this very particularly by setting Acule Poirot, a Belgian detective, up against the local French detective called Giraud. And um she paints him as a young detective to Poirot's older man. But someone of the school, maybe a prototype CSI detective. I mean, she calls him an animal, foxhound um that he sniffs his way across the floor searching inch by inch trying to find minute little clues she has a lot of fun with him um by saying that he is very excited to find a unburnt matchstick and takes this as a great clue but completely dismisses the fact that there's a giant length of lead piping next to the dead body and and Parara says you know if you if you want to look for material clues the big ones are just as valuable as the little ones you know um, but as we know, she's already steering Poirot away from the material clues, although he does look at those, the length of a coat, um, the lead piping um, and others. She steers him more towards the logical clues. So Hercule Poirot's big deal is going to be that he wants to look at the logic of the case, the psychology of a case and use his little grey cells. So what what a Hercule Poirot novel is going to become is being debated and it's almost like she is in a metatext way kind of stating her case why she's not going to have certain elements or why she's going to write in contrast to certain element, which I think is really fascinating. So what is the plot of this novel? Uh, No spoilers for this bit or indeed any of this podcast. Um, it starts off with a very, very rich gentleman called Monsieur Renault who has recently um reestablished himself in Europe after making a great fortune in South America. And he has married apparently very happily to his wife of many years, and they have a son called Jack. And they're living at the moment in a beautiful villa um, in France. So he writes to Aguil Poirot and says, please, can you come to France and take up my case? Because I'm very scared that people are after me. And, you know, I've made a great fortune in South America. I suspect it could be people from Chile or Argentina. So he sets up this big thriller mystery. But by the time that Poirot and his sidekick Hastings get to France, they discover that Monsieur Renault has already been murdered. And so the mystery is one of who killed him. At first, it feels as though this kind of, you know, the strange thriller-esque aspect is real because his beloved wife has been found bound and gagged in the bedroom. And she says that two mysterious masked men broke in um, and were trying to find the husband. So it feels like that might be the reason, but obviously this is Poirot, it's never quite so easy. We very quickly discover that there is another woman of a certain age in the village. And that she has been receiving large sums of money in her bank account from the murdered man. So was she the mistress? Was there another reason for him to be paying her off? We also discover that he had very clearly cleared the decks of his villa that night of the murder. So he'd sent his trusty chauffeur away, given him a holiday. He was very clearly trying to get people out of the way. So something was going on. And we also learned very quickly that um, the daughter of the person who was receiving large amounts of money from the dead man was in love with the dead man's son, Jack, and that Jack had gone to his father and told him about this relationship and he was not happy about it. So where is the motivation? Um, This is an incredibly rich man. When he dies, we discover he has left all of his money to his wife. He has not left, as expected, half of it to his son. So there's always a, a, a sort of a motive there of money. There are payments being made to another woman. Is there a motive of love? And we also have this mysterious young woman floating around the French village who Hastings calls Cinderella. And it may be that there is some kind of love triangle going on there between Jack, the daughter of the the, the other woman in the village and this mysterious young lady. So as with a lot of Agatha Christie, there's a real mix of motivation, love, lust, um, the keeping of secrets and great wealth. So it's classic in that respect. And she sets us up for a really, really twisty, convoluted double reveal. So about oh gosh maybe it's a 270 page um, novel in my paperback edition a good 90 pages before the end Paro kind of does a big reveal of the first part of the mystery so he unveils who was the person who committed the murder when Hastings and Paro got to France and why had Monsieur Renault commissioned them but to get the final solution, you do have to wait a, a long while to the end of the book. And it's because this is actually a very, very um, beautifully constructed um, murder mystery. Although it is like saddled with this bizarre conversation with a, a detective that Agatha Christie uh, despises in Giro, And it's it's kind of got this awful romance story tacked on. You also I think have to buy into a big coincidence that sets off the whole plot where two people find themselves in close proximity and secrets from the past can be revealed. In fairness to Agatha Christie she doesn't hide the fact that this is a ludicrous coincidence and she explains it as fate that these two people had to meet to expose the secret and there is is running through Agatha Christie's work a kind of a belief in natural justice maybe or maybe that's the wrong way of putting it but that evil and that secrets will out and that the world will find a way of making that the case so you've kind of got to swallow that I think for the novel to work I mean I didn't in a way and I think that as well as the artifice of this meta text around the type of detective Poirot is going to be and the awful romance is a reason why I find it Not one of the most enjoyable books to read and not one of the most satisfying, um, although I can see exactly what she's trying to do with it. One of the reasons I think it is quite a hard novel to read as a modern reader is so many of the attitudes expressed in it are horrible. And this is sometimes deliberate and sometimes not. So let's take the case of Captain Hastings, who I said in The Mysterious Affair at starts was a bit of an ass, especially when it came to women. And he, as we meet him meeting this lovely young woman on a train on the way to uh, France. He lives up to um, his absolute stereotype of being a stuffy old conservative gent who's deeply misogynistic. Um, so he meets he meets the new woman, who we know Agatha Christie admires and loves, right? I mean, that's really a definition of Tuppence Ber- Beresford from The Secret Adversary. This is a quote from the book. Now, I am old-fashioned. A woman, I consider, should be womanly. I have no patience with the modern erotic girl who jazzes from morning to night, smokes like a chimney and uses language which would make a Billingsgate fishwoman blush. Um, So yeah, there you go. He is very judgmental of the modern woman. It's also really fascinating, I think, that all of the women in this book, so this is what Agatha Christie admires, right? All of them, whether it is that young woman he meets on the train, whether it's the women in the village who are bound up in the story, all have deep secrets and are all playing a part, um, which I don't think is, is a spoiler. I think it goes to show how often in Agatha Christie, the women are far more complicated and have far more nuanced motivations than the men. The men are often puppets or pawns to the women. The women are often underestimated at the readers and other people in the book's peril. And I really like that. I really like the fact that the women are far more three dimensional than the men. The men are often just wandering around, falling in love randomly and then sort of suddenly realising they're not really enough and falling in love with someone else at the flash of an ankle. I mean, it really betrays something rather dark about Agatha Christie's view on romance at this period, I have to say. So that's kind of weird to read today. Captain Hastings, when you're when he's pensioned off at the end of this book, you're very much glad of that fact, I think, or certainly I was. There are other prejudices that come across in this novel. Um, there's a very light, but definitely despicable anti-Semitism, which I think would have been very typical of Agatha Christie's class of people. I, I mean, I just think it was there in Europe at the time, right? This is 1923. So it's not focused on a particular person this time, as it might have been with uh, Mr. Mearsheimer in The Secret Adversary. Sorry, Hersheimer in The Secret Adversary. But when Hercule Poirot receives the commission from Monsieur Renaud to go to France, and he says, you know, money's going to be no object, just come over, I'll pay you whatever you need to investigate this case. Hastings responds with, quote, I smell some goodly shekels, end quote in this. Um, which is just such a casual anti-Semitism, right? Just associating anything to do with crazy amounts of money with with Jewish people. And it's something that you're going to find happens often in Agatha Christie, that if she has a character that's super, Amer- super rich, and especially if they're American, they're often Jewish. And it's not even that she thinks that being rich is a bad thing. I mean, as a woman who really struggled for money early on she really admires especially that kind of sort of American self-made person far more than the British aristocrats um, but she does often make them Jewish and it is that kind of knee-jerk thing that we're going to just associate Jewish people with being filthy rich and that kind of underlying connotation that maybe um, not all as well so there's that little throwaway mark about remark about shekels which did not sit well with me The other thing in this novel that's really unpalatable to modern readership is um, that at several points, Akil Poirot says he believes in heredity. And heredity of evil, um, of psychopathy, of wily ways, whatever that is. In fairness, by the end, he does also say that you can inherit good qualities too. But I find that so bizarre. It's so genetic, right? Um, And I think here it is meant to be genes rather than memes. Um, So it's not environment, it is something in quote unquote the blood. So for instance, there are a couple of characters who are one generation down from an, an original crime that was committed. And part of the reason that he deduces the identity of the ultimate killer, he lists out four reasons, four clues. And one of them is simply heredity the idea that they are the child of someone who also committed a crime and you just think my word you can tell how the 1920s with all that weird messed up prejudice around sort of genetics bled into the horrors of the 1940s um so there's that and then this is another one right so in case you think that she's just uh has casual anti-semitism in her books um, the character of Cinderella, the sort of the the flapperish young woman that Hastings abhors and then comes to admire, says of herself, so self-hating, that she has Italian blood in her veins and she loses her temper and this gets her into trouble. And it's something that you would read a lot in novels of this area of this era and later in English fiction. This idea that you know the English are more fair-minded and that the the Mediterraneans are hot-blooded and intemperate and this gets them into trouble. So watch out for that when we get into death on the Nile as well. In this case, it doesn't necessarily indicate that person's a murderer, but it is really fascinating that it's something that she kind of talks about again and again. So heredity, um, the passing on, the sins of the father to the son or the daughter, that's all kind of like really weird. The other thing is, is that... Poirot and therefore maybe one should believe also Christie says quote I do not believe in marrying out of class and I do wonder when I read that whether that was just the prejudice of the time you know England is quite a class-bound society and maybe that would be true today whether people would dare to to say it and actually when you look at some of her murder plots to date they are about people who are Maybe working class or lower class plotting to get fortunes that belong to people who are of a higher class. So maybe there's a risk scene in doing that. But it's just so weird when you think of these three novels and you think of the type of people that Agatha Christie clearly admires in them. These very up and coming young women who are very entrepreneurial, who throw off the shackles of class, um, who are out there making their fortunes, making their way like Tuppence Beresford. And yet there is this conservative element to her as well, whereby people should be married off at the end, regardless of this imposed romance genre. She does like, Papa Poirot does like to matchmake. And there's always a a kind of a neatness in terms of class and age to how she does that. So this brings me to a book recommendation. So if you are interested in reading about this clash within Christie of her modernity and her conservatism... Then you can read a book by Alison Light and it's called Forever England, Femininity, Literature and Conservatism Between the Wars. And there is a chapter in there on on Agatha Christie as an author. And um, I think that explores some of these really fascinating um, clashes of ideas that are working their way through society and therefore also in Christie at that time. As far as adaptations go, there's a 1996 TV version of Murder on the Links, starring David Suchet, as Ezekiel Poirot, so part of that British ITV series where they filmed all of the novels. Um, there are some changes made to it. Actually, in this case, probably for the better, just streamlining some of the kind of more silly stuff. They also relocate it from um, sort of like the rather more post-war bankrupt northern France to Deauville, which is a little bit more glamorous. And maybe the most noteworthy thing about it is that the screenwriter was Anthony Horowitz. That said, unless you're a completionist or you're really interested in seeing the evolution of the young Agatha Christie as a writer, I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading Murder on the Links or watching the show. I think there's far better to come in very short order. And as a reminder, we'll be reading The Murder of Roger Ackroyd for our big 1st reread podcast. So... I hope you enjoy reading that if you're going to join in. Um, If not, I hope you enjoy reading whatever it is that you're focusing on this weekend. Um, Speak to you soon. Bye.